KFI AM uh, 640. Bill Handel here on a Tuesday morning, August uh, 2nd. And let me share with you uh, stories that are trending. Uh, Nancy Pelosi expected to visit Taiwan. She's decided to make that trip. And, oh, boy, that's going to blow up, to say the least. And uh, our governor has declared a monkeypox state of emergency. Uh, the other big news, uh, and uh, this reverberated around the world, to say the least, uh, Ayman al-Zawahidi, uh, the al-Qaeda leader, uh, the successor to Osama bin Laden, uh, bin Laden has been killed uh, in Kabul, middle of a very fancy neighborhood in a high-end house living there with his family, uh, out of sight for many years. It's been 21 years that he's been on the FBI's most wanted list and uh, with the CIA going after him. And after a lot of good intelligence, the uh, CIA was able to uh, put a drone up and launch a missile, and he is gone. And uh, he's the only one. Family was in the house. Uh, there were plenty of people in the house, but he was out on a balcony, and they got him. And they got him. And the president announced that. And we go back to the days where, uh, do you remember when... Uh, President uh, Obama uh, was, uh, in, I think, in the hallway in front of the East Room and uh, at the lectern, and he said, we got him. And that was, uh, boy, I remember scrambling for that one. Okay, number two leader, but really in many ways was the number one leader of al-Qaeda. And what a fascinating background this guy has. I mean, just one interesting guy he was really the brains behind al-Qaeda the whole time. 71 years old, killed in the CIA drone strike, a precision strike. And this was a brilliant move. And I want to go back and give you a little background of him. Now, he had his own militant group. And he had his own brand of terrorism. He really developed the al-Qaeda brand of terrorism. I'll explain in a minute. And what that did, uh, his group merged with bin Laden's group, and he became number two. But in reality, the brains, the strategist of it. And uh, that happened in the early 90s. He came up with the idea of not only defeating immediate enemies, but the far enemy. Read the United States. And uh, this in his mind, was essential as part of taking out the near enemy, the pro-Western Arab regimes. And all of them were tied together, and he thought it would be far more effective to go after the big guy, and that's us. Uh, he said, or actually he wrote in a manifesto in 1998, to kill Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in every country in which it is possible to do it. He wrote that in 1998, three years before September 11, 2001. He didn't have bin Laden's charisma. Matter of fact, he was boring as hell. I mean, this guy was in the minutiae. He was a scholar. Uh, he became the intellectual force behind al-Qaeda, uh, including... The attempt, thank God, and it was part of his plan, and thank goodness he couldn't get there, and that is acquiring a nuclear and biological weapon. And uh, the group, al-Qaeda, was forced to retreat 
from Afghanistan in early 2002. And uh, what happened was um, the uh, Americans shut down everything part of—he actually had a lab that was developing biological weapons and moving towards acquiring nuclear weapons, and uh, that was able to be shut down. And then, uh, effectively, uh, al-Qaeda became sort of into the tribal region on the border and didn't have, no longer had the technical capability of dealing with uh, nukes and biological uh, weapons. And then, uh, in later years, uh, after uh, bin Laden was killed, he presided over al-Qaeda as it was declining. Most of the group's founding figures were dead or in hiding because obviously they were uh, public enemies, number one, two, three. The entire world was looking for them. Do you remember the amount of resources that were made in fighting terrorism? And this guy was at the top of the heap with bin Laden. He remained uh, the figurehead. Uh, He couldn't prevent the uh, the splintering of the group. Uh, and what he did is, uh, well, he disappeared. Uh, originally, he was hard to find, but he disappeared, even from his own people, disappeared from public view, and you only occasionally hear about him. He would write essays. He's written books while he was in hiding. He videotaped sermons. A couple times he was declared dead, and out he came with a video. The guy couldn't be killed. So, Dunn finished off the table. Now his background as a terrorist, and I want to share this story with you because it's a fascinating guy. And he was born in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in Cairo, in a Cairo suburb. And it was diverse as they come. Uh, There were Jews in that neighborhood. As a matter of fact, while he was there... Uh, it not only had a large Jewish population, uh, but there were more churches than mosques in his area, to give you an idea. Join uh, June 19th, 1951, uh, just turned 71. Academically gifted as a kid, very, very smart. Uh, but early in his life, he was influenced by one of his uncles, just a really passionate critic of the Egyptian government, who was a, sec- was a secularist government, a non-religious government. He was also um, uh, uh, truly influenced by an Egyptian author, a guy who became uh, a founder of one of the modern Islamist extremist organizations in Egypt. So at the time he was 15, there was also an execution uh, by Egyptian government of this author who was a hero of his. And at 15, so I hear he actually organizes a group of friends, young friends. Uh, They go into the underground, an underground cell devoted to the overthrow of Egypt's government and the establishment of his Islamic theocracy, which is exactly what uh, is going on in uh, Afghanistan today and Iran. He started doing this at 15. I mean, that's how long he has been a radicalized extremist. So his political views get harder and harder. During this time, he goes to medical school at Cairo University, best university in the area. He gets a serious degree, gets a medical degree, and becomes a doctor. And for a time, he was an Army surgeon, and he opened up a practice, a private practice, 
Uh, he married the daughter of a wealthy, very well-connected Egyptian family, one son, five daughters. And uh, his radicalization con- uh, continued. He was working at the Muslim Brotherhood Clinic at one of them, and he was invited to make um, some visits to refugee camps along the Afghani-Pakistan border. And there he was uh, practicing medicine and patching up the uh, wounds of the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviets at that time in Afghanistan. And we were backing the Mujahideen. We were actually giving them weapons and training and stinger missiles. And they were successful in overthrowing the Soviets with our help. And these were a bunch of radical extremists. We knew it. And they they turned against us. But we wanted the Soviets out of Afghanistan. It's a crazy situation. For example, prior to the Gulf War, we were allies uh, with Iraq during the Iraq-Iran War, supplying Saddam Hussein with weaponry to fight Iran. And so while he was there with the Mujahideen and fighting the Soviets, he meets this guy, a young Saudi man by the name of uh, bin Laden. Woo. And at that time, he had his own revolutionary movement, and they were plotting in the early 80s to assassinate Egyptian leaders. It all had to do with Egypt. He was part of uh, assassinating Egyptian President Anwar Sadat in 1981. And so there was a huge government crackdown. He was arrested, spent three years in prison, and claimed later on he was tortured during his imprisonment. But he only got three years. In those days, I mean, these terrorists would get just a few years. And then he started his nomadic life frequently going to South Asia, uh, common cause with the Mujahideen, with bin Laden, made at least one trip to the United States. He came to the United States here to Southern California, and that was uh, in the uh, 1990s. Uh, He was raising money for Muslim charities. There's a picture of him on a prayer rug at Disneyland in front of It's a Small World. That's absolutely not true. I just made that up. Hey, I got to add a little flavor to this story, don't I? Uh, Yeah. He was living in Afghanistan in 1997, and there he started the big attacks. Uh, He planned the attack on those foreign tourists at the Luxor Ruins in Egypt. Uh, That claimed the lives of 62 people, including some Japanese tourists. And uh, it just got to be crazy. Ordinary Egyptians that were sort of kind of on his fault, uh, on his side, the religious ones. At that point, uh, his support disappeared. His movement uh, completely evaporated. And then the battle shifted to Israel. And what he did is he morphed with bin Laden's group. And he was a senior advisor to bin Laden. He was bin Laden's personal physician. Because remember, he was a doctor. And Zawahari was put uh, in charge of planning the September 11th attack by the hijackers. Wow. And then he launched uh, the biological weapons program, a laboratory in Afghanistan, as I said earlier. I mean, he was, I mean, if he got nukes or he got biological weapons, can you imagine? I mean, this, the belief was you wipe out as many Westerners as you can under any circumstances. The more women and children, the better. And those efforts might have succeeded, 
But what happened, he ran out of times, uh, time after uh, September 11th, uh, the military campaign by the U.S. and uh, its allies drove out uh, all of al-Qaeda's Taliban uh, allies, and he had to shut down. And then he went to uh, Pakistan with uh, bin Laden, a bounty of $25 million on both of their heads. And during this manhunt, he became the most uh, wanted with bin Laden terrorist in the world. And after bin Laden was killed, uh, he was number one. He became the leader in May of 2011 after bin Laden was killed. And uh, he sort of became distant. The longer uh, after 9-11 it was, the more distant he became. And uh, he ended up, I mean, he did essays. He did some videos that he's still alive. He was a nominal head, but al-Qaeda has lost its huge influence. There are other terrorist groups around the world that have become enemies of al-Qaeda, actually. And there he, there he was until this weekend uh, in this very high-end house in a great neighborhood in Kabul, and a CIA, CIA drone got him. Great news. Just great news. All right, there is a story uh, that I want to share with you, and it has to do with city government, transportation, housing, and gentrification, all in one swell, uh, one fell swoop. There's a billion-dollar project being planned in North Hollywood at the rail bus station. Includes 1,500 apartments, commercial centers, $80 million in station improvement, and uh, that is about to be approved. L.A. Metro, uh, the county transit agency, uh, is uh, diving headfirst into what is considered the largest transit-centered housing project in its history on about 16 acres of its own land. So it's not buying land. It's been around, it's been decades in the making, this one. And Metro and the city have hammered out this agreement with a private de uh, developer, the Trammell Crow Company, uh, to not only build the project, but also pay for the Metro station amenities and the project. I mean, it is huge. Uh, over 10 years, uh, can you imagine the number of people it'll employ, but it'll also create plenty of market base and income-restricted housing, affordable housing, low-cost housing, uh, 100,000 square feet of retail and restaurants, uh, 580,000 square feet of office space. I mean, this is no small deal. Of course, the project's being um, challenged. Of course it is, because you have uh, housing advocates in the East San Fernando Valley, and they're, it's real simple. More dedicated, affordable housing. And we're going to look at a sh uh, be looking at a showdown. Of course, we are. Now, originally, and here are here's the issue, and it's legitimate. Originally, the promise was 35% affordable housing. Uh, then it dropped to 20%. Incidentally, by law, uh, it has to be 15% affordable housing. That's what the developers have to do. And so. All of a sudden, you have less affordable housing, and then the argument becomes uh, it's effectively high-end housing, and here's what's going on. L.A. was far from this, but it's moving in this direction. And that is the closer you are to a transit center, the more expensive the housing is. You go to New York, 
The closer you are to a subway station, the more expensive the property is. The uh, You go up north, for example, along BART. The closer you are to a BART station, the more expensive that property is to buy or to rent. Why? Because they use a lot of public transport in those areas. And we're moving in that direction. And that means you're going to have richer people move in. And you're going to have young professionals who are more apt to use public uh, public transport. And all of a sudden, the cost of housing goes through the roof. And guess what? Those who need affordable housing are kind of screwed. And so what's ending up happening is the fight continues. And the fight is all about affordable housing. Now, uh, we're still talking 300 and something units of affordable housing, but that's not enough. Uh, The advocates want to double that. Say, come on, what we need is a whole lot more. And that is the problem we're going to have. This housing issue is probably the single, I would say, the homeless slash housing, both shelters, medium uh, medium time housing as well as full time permanent housing is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, issues here in California. Inflation is national, but here locally, uh, this is the big issue. So here's a project we're going to he- be hearing about for years. But if you've ever gone to North Hollywood, man, that's going to change that area completely. I mean, you're going to see. Uh, Once this thing is built, a whole new center like the Warner Center in the West Valley, which was created uh, out of nothing. And all of a sudden, there's this massive uh, project over the years that was built. Uh, It's going to be impressive, assuming they can ever, ever get it finished. I want to give you a story about Tesla that's going on right now. It's kind of interesting. Elon Musk. Elon Musk is always a story. And this... Uh, story. The segment is about why people are not buying Tesla. And not because Tesla is not a great car. They easily believe Tesla is, is a great car. And they know the technology there, which is still ahead of uh, the curve. No, it's because of him. Because of Musk himself. Fair number of people just won't touch it because they can't stand him. Now, this is before even Sergey Brin's wife, uh, well, that uh, he was, it was reported that he had an affair with Sergey Brin, uh, Brin's wife. Sergey Brin, by the way, one of the two people that founded Google, kind of rich in his own mind. He's denied that. Uh, then remember the deal, no deal to get Twitter? That's up in the air. Uh, and then there was uh, the revelation. This is a fact that he fathered twins with an executive at his other startup company, Neuralink, and this was a brain interface company. He's got a lot of companies to start up. And this was before SpaceX fired one of the employees who called him a frequent source of distraction and embarrassment. And uh, that's a lawsuit uh, before his daughter changed her name and gender um, after his history of mocking pronouns. Uh, before there was an article in SpaceX paid an employee $250,000 to settle a claim that he sexually harassed her, which he says is untrue, and uh, putting off prospective customers, as well as getting current Tesla owners really angry with him. 
Now, there is uh, a survey done by Creative Strategies. This is a California-based customer experience measure. It's kind of a strange company. And this was published in April. And uh, Musk has been found to be the most negative aspect of the Tesla brand. You look at all of the negative aspects, Musk is at the top of the list. Try doing that with any other car dealership or any other car manufacturer. You know, I like Fords, but I can't stand the CEO. Who's the CEO? Nobody knows. GMs, Mercedes. God, I, I hate Mercedes. Great car. Buy it in a second. I just can't stand the CEO. Who? That's my point. Now, so far, the company's doing great, uh, even though he would sell a lot more cars if he wasn't so controversial. But that is double-sided, too. Uh, last quarter was the first quarter uh, since uh, the early 19, uh, since early 19, uh, to before 2020, I'm sorry, in which vehicle deliveries went down. But it had to do with COVID uh, more than anything else. And the cars are now back up. And so the other side of people who like Tesla is mainly because of Tesla. No one buys a Tesla because of Musk. A fair number of people don't buy Teslas because of Musk. So it's not a break even. Uh, now, it turns out that uh, Tesla itself is still ahead of the game. Uh, it doesn't uh, have traditional advertising. You don't see Tesla TV, uh, TV ads or print ads. What you do is it's word of mouth. And the argument is Musk, even though he's not liked, is uh, an integral part of bringing the brand to everyone's mind. So I guess that can be argued. I told you it was uh, two-sided on this uh, issue uh, because his name is synonymous with Tesla, and look at how he's able to get publicity going. And since his name is synonymous, every time you think of or reminded of or there's a story about Musk, you automatically know it's about Tesla or you connect Musk to Tesla, also with SpaceX. But SpaceX is not a consumer product that's sold. It has contracts with NASA. That's where it's making its money. But look at where he gets publicity. Uh, he doesn't have to buy it. I mean, he has these, uh, this ongoing banter online. How many followers does he have on his Twitter account? I think 80 million, 100 million. Uh, so he has all of this banner. Uh, he has these grandiose uh, announcements. He does stunts. Remember that roadster that went up on the first SpaceX that hit orbit? Tell me that didn't make news. You think Mercedes would ever do that or GM would ever do that? No. I mean, the guy is a genius at this, even though a lot of people hate him. And what he does keeps Tesla in the headlines. And then the question is, and there are no surveys of this, does the increase of name recognition because of him, does that help because it's advertising or does that hurt because so many people just hate him? He's also waded into politics. I mean, he's talked about freedom of speech. You can say anything you want. You can uh, issue racist tweets. And he goes, it's your right to do that. Uh, now, here is uh, what did happen in terms of real numbers. A U.S. research firm, a Strategic Vision, 
they looked at this, and they consult with auto companies. 39% of car buyers would not consider a Tesla. However, almost half the respondents won't consider a German car, but that is not because of the CEO. No one knows who the hell the CEO is because the German cars simply aren't up to par in terms of this technology. They're coming in fairly late. Toyota, on the other hand, uh, has come in fairly early uh, with the hybrids, et cetera. And so they're only a 23 percent of uh, the car buying population would not consider a Toyota. So up through the past decade, Tesla simply didn't have competitors. Uh, couldn't match the range. Remember the uh, early problems with all of these cars? It was all about range. 40 miles, 50 miles, come on. Uh, 30 miles with the early ones. Well, Tesla can knock out 250, 300 miles, and it was the first car that did that. So it's, and it's still ahead technologically, although the other car manufacturers are quickly moving up. So the bottom line, everybody loves to hate Musk. And is it hurting sales? Yes. But at the same time, he's helping sales. You figure it out. I know I'm not buying one. I just find them uncomfortable. And I am in the market for an EV. I will be buying one. When I was a kid, junior high school particularly, I remember... Uh, whenever you would get a, a gift, there were two things that uh, come birthdays uh, or special days or what if you were dating, you know, little junior high school dating. Uh, what, what kind of gifts would you get? Old Spice and High Karate. Well, that was it. Those were the go-to gifts. Old Spice, I don't know how much it costs now for, let's say, the Old Spice cologne, $3 for a bottle of Old Spice. Now it was $0.29 cents back then. Uh, high Karate, do they still make High Karate? I, I think they do. Uh, that's $2 a bottle today of uh, High Karate cologne. They're locking up. Well, certainly we know Old Spice is being made. They lock it up. Wait a minute. They lock up Old Spice at the stores? Come on. You bet they are. You wouldn't believe the products that are on uh, store shelves, especially drugstore shelves, that are now behind lock and key. Deodorant, toothpaste, candy, dish detergent, soap, aluminum foil. I'll tell you a growth business. If you happen to be a manufacturer or want to invest in a, a company that produces those law cases and devices, you're going to do just well. Uh, you're going to do really well. Uh, Walgreens and Rite Aid have said, here's a major problem. It's not just the normal shoplifter. It's the organized retail crime. It's these rings that go in and clean out the store and then sell it. How do they sell it? On the Internet. That's one of the wonderful aspects of the Internet. And uh, they actually can break into those uh, into those uh, locked areas. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, if it's on the shelf, it's cleaned out for sure. Even toothpaste is locked up these days. And while the theft is irritating for the retailer who loses his or her shirt, guess for shoppers? Now, you go to the store. Uh, I go to Ralph's. I go to Vaughn's. And uh, let's say I'm going down uh, the wine aisle 
looking for uh, going to the deli to look for uh, my ham. So I go through the, the wine aisle. All right, you have these bottles of wine. Fair enough. And then when you're looking at the really expensive bottles of wine, 30 40 bucks a bottle. If you go to pavilions, you can spend $300 a bottle or I mean, $1,600 a bottle for cognac. And, of course, that's locked up. Uh, behind a, um, you know, locked window, uh, a case. I can understand that. But 12 bucks worth of toothpaste? No, $6 worth of toothpaste. Or deodorant. Or face cream. They're locking that stuff up too. Obviously to prevent shoplifting. And here's where companies are really getting nailed. They have to draw that line between protecting their inventory and creating stores that customers just don't walk into, don't want to walk into. I mean, a pain in the ass. You want to go, hey, I need some razor blades. Uh, I happen to use uh, those uh, Gillette Power Blasto 5000 razor blades. And uh, they're expensive as hell. And they're always locked up. But if I want to get them, other than a Costco where I normally get them where they're just hanging out, uh, let's say I need an emergency stash. I have to call the clerk over to open up that case. And if they're busy, I will sit there picking my nose for a while until they show up. They don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And the store, in many cases, is simply going to lose the sale because no one has the patience. It used to be that shoplifting was an issue. You go back to the turn of the last century. Uh, you had clerks behind the counter. There was no shoplifting because you'd ask the clerk for something, he'd reach behind, he'd grab it to you. Well, supermarkets came up, and all of a sudden, uh, people could lift things off the shelf. Early on, cigarettes were locked up. Those were the first ones that were locked up. And then came health and beauty products. And uh, here are the big ones that are stolen. Cigarettes, health and beauty products, over-the-counter medication, contraceptives. That's because it's embarrassing to ask for them, too. I, I, you know, I'd rather steal them than go, excuse me, can I have one of those? No, no, I need the extra large size. Knowing I don't need the extra large size, uh, but, you know, it's, it's an embarrassment factor. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? And, I mean, all kinds of security issues. It's a problem. It is a real problem, and it's here to stay. You're going to have a, a really hard time. All right. I want to touch on inflation. And uh, as you know, the president's approval rating has uh, plummeted and in no small part to inflation. So inflation uh, has weighed down the Biden administration, uh, mainly because the buck stops at the Oval Office, uh, no matter what the problem is. It's always the president's fault. But uh, let me give you a reality check. What is really causing inflation it has much more inf influence. It's political, but it's way down the future, uh, food chain. Governors, uh, city elected officials, state elected officials. Inflation was over 9% from June uh, to uh, last month, uh, if you look at the annualized, it's about 9 8 9% right now. And a lot of it is driven by the lack of housing, uh, the energy crisis, uh, the Fed raised interest rates this last time again by three-quarters of a percent. So it's going through the roof. 
in an effort to slow down inflation. And the way to do it is simply make money a lot more expensive, which slows down purchasing and borrowing because just a lot of money. And so usually whenever there's a problem, the first thing you do is blame the, fe- the, the, the federal government. Naturally, you got to blame the president because that's one person. But it actually makes more sense to blame the state of California or your county government or your city government. And why is that? Because if you look at the problems, for example, housing, that's really not a federal problem. That's a local problem. Why? Because housing is, for the most part, controlled locally. For example, here in the city of Los Angeles, say, let's say you're a developer and you want to build housing, of which by law you have to put up 15% for low-income housing. And by the way, uh, that's just the law. That's a minimum because if you're negotiating with the city for a building permit and there's a big piece of land, uh, the city might very well start saying, we want 25%. And you go, no, uh, okay, I'll give you 17% or 18%. And that's just part of the negotiation process. It's the city that establishes the zoning issues. How many units can you put up? How dense can the unit be, uh, dense can the property be per acre? And they're changing, but they're changing slowly. That has a huge amount to do with the housing crisis. How much money is being spent on housing? The feds don't spend a lot of money on housing. I mean, they give grants, but the states and the counties and the cities spend a lot more. Uh then you have uh, the tax on gasoline. Some of it is fed, but look at the majority of the tax. It's state and local. That's where it is. Things are more expensive to buy because of inflation. So what happens? Well, for example, uh, here in the state of California, guess what? Sales tax is going up. Well, I think it has gone up as of July 1st. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused huge problems. Let's blame the president for that one. You've got the state of California that just sued the federal government to keep the leases or to undo the leases that President Trump allowed on federal line uh, uh, land for fracking and oil exploration. Okay, that's the state of California that stopped the Fed. Finally, a settlement would just read, uh, reach. We did a story this morning on it. Some of the answer, of course, is federal, but a tiny percentage. Okay, let's look at the cost of power, which has exploded. You're going to be paying so much for the utility. Uh, do the feds control the utility? No, those are locally controlled. Those are controlled by the state. They're controlled by the municipalities. The Department of Water and Power, Southern California Edison, that's not controlled by Joe Biden and the federal government. Department of Water and Power is a city. It's L.A. City. And they're the ones that determine how much power is. And then if there is an issue, if power is too expensive or uh, the municipality, uh, the agency wants more money, they go to the California 
the PUC, Public Utilities Commission, which is not federal. It is state. So if you look at home building, for example, three main factors, the credit condition, that's not the president. Credit is, for the most part, determined by monetary policy, which is the Fed. Uh, You've got land use policy. That's local. You've got the elected officials and local leaders have virtually all of the power. And then you have the supply chain issue. Where is that? That's an international problem. How is the president responsible for the fact that, for example, we have a supply chain issue and the fact that we don't have any chips? The big issue is chips. That's what's stopping a whole computer chips, probably responsible for most of uh the power, uh, the supply chain issue, because how much stuff is predicated on the use of computer chips, like everything. And where do the chips come from? They come from overseas. They haven't been building here. Why? Because the cost of building is so expensive, because land is so expensive, because there are so many restrictions, because you have to get permits, you have to get zoning, all of it being local. So go ahead and uh, blame. Uh, the feds blame Joe Biden. Now, do I think he's doing a great job? I do not. Do I think he has an ungovernable situation? I do. And I think you have to nail him on issues that he can control, not issues he can't. For example, uh, oh, we're all pissed off to Nancy Pelosi. And President Xi doesn't understand. Why couldn't you stop Nancy Pelosi? And Biden says, because I have no control over her. She is an independently elected official in the executive branch, does not control the legislative branch. So we're looking at a major problem with Taiwan right now, China and dealing with Taiwan and us and Pelosi being there. Let's blame Biden. And by the way, I'm not telling you not to, but if you're going to blame him, let's be realistic. Let's blame the stuff that he actually can control. Like the way he handled the withdrawal in Afghanistan, there uh, the CIA just missed it. And that's another thing. He relies on the CIA. He doesn't do his own intelligence. He should have known that the CIA intelligence was faulty. Ungovernable job. I don't, I don't understand how a president wakes up and does his job. The number one concern in the United States is, no surprise here, inflation. And how do you tell, if I didn't tell you there was inflation. How would you able to tell that something very different is afoot? Well, all of us watch television, and unfortunately, all of us are subjected to TV commercials. Uh, even now, those of us on uh, cable and satellite TV are now looking at, wait a sec, streaming TV, but I, I paid for non, no, no commercials, Yeah. I was just watching something on Paramount Plus. I pay for Paramount Plus. There didn't used to be uh, commercials. There were no commercials. Guess what? Commercials. And so you look at commercials, which we're all familiar with, and uh, you'll see something different. Walmart, for example, um, you know, pulled the plug on ads that were about to promote fresh food and clothing because inflation. Inflation is it. So what it did is craft new ads that we're now seeing. And as a matter of fact, they took footage from older ads to save time and money. 
And here is the message. It's gotten real simple. You're getting squeezed. Walmart is helping you by keeping your prices low. That's it. There's the message. The chief marketing officer of Walmart said the latest commercials uh, are aimed at your, our ingenuity and tenacity in leaner times. And instead of talking about the state of the economy, because you already know it, we're here to help you. We know that people are changing their behavior, he said, so it's important for us to be clear in the role that we can play in that decision. And some, some brands are using a, an opportunity to poke fun at rivals, their inflation ads. Mint Mobile, uh, it's a wireless. You saw the commercials. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is the pitch man. Recently ran a campaign uh, that was actually called Deflation, in which uh, he said the company would cut the price of its mobile service for a few months. And effectively saying, the other carriers, what are they doing? Uh, a lot of companies are framing their campaigns around high gas prices. Bojangles, a U.S. restaurant chain, gasoline restaurant, yeah, it specializes in fried chicken, Cajun seasoned fried chicken, ran a promotion in April. You got a $10 gas card with the purchase of a 12-piece or 20-piece chicken family meal. Company said a million dollars in free gas was uh, given out in 25 days, but did it sell more chicken? Oh, yes, it did. $10 free gas card, that'll give you two gallons, a gallon and a half. If you go to outdoorsz.com uh, and uh, Outdoorz uh, rents RVs, the word inflation in one commercial appears six times. In a 30-second commercial, Burger King France ran a promotion in March. It lowered the cost of its uh, Whopper burger in France uh, if you went through the drive-thru for two bucks. A Whopper for two dollars, or actually 1.99 euros, which is, it's par today, so it's effectively two bucks. It's usually five dollars, or five euros. Two bucks, if you went through, because and they promoted the hell out of it. Uh, just to let you know, gas prices in France uh, are over $8 a gallon. As I said, Americans, we're seeing inflation as the biggest issue facing us. So Outdoorsy.com, uh, this is the uh, RV rental company, adjusted its marketing completely. It now focuses on cost-saving associated with vacationing in an RV. It used to be, have a good time, drive around the country, uh, you can drive where you want to, meet people, all that. Gone! Now it's, you don't have to book hotels, you don't have to book flights, look how much cheap, you can cook your own meals, look how much cheaper it is to vacation with a rental RV. And some companies are opting and they're saying uh, that the, they're keeping their prices flat. We're not raising prices at all. We're not going to do it for a year. So that seems to be it. There's a Canadian, uh, uh, there's a Canadian uh, pizza company. Pizza Pizza, by the way, is based out of Canada. And they're saying for a year we're keeping our prices flat. That's their campaign. That's how these companies are dealing with inflation. And uh, by the way, 
it's working. Catch you tomorrow. We start all over again at 5 a.m. with Wake Up Call. Handle the morning crew, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.